Um, some of you, like I said, have, may have heard this lecture before. Um, I did add some slides to it and updated it with uh, Dr. Burns's help. So um, it's hepatic emergencies that we're going to talk about, and um, you know I have no financial disclosures. Um, the objectives of this talk um, are to identify emergent complications of chronic liver failure, to begin treatment for the emergent complications of liver failure, discuss the care of and disposition of the critically ill patient with liver failure, and um, <clears throat> You know, what I'm not going to talk about is acute liver injuries. So I think Dr. Sushar does a really good job doing that with acute liver injuries and toxicities. I'm not going to talk about that, namely acetaminophen and overdose, but I'm not going to talk about This is chronic liver disease, but the acute presentation of chronic liver disease. Okay? Great. So we're going to start with the case, like I usually do with um, most of my talks. We have a 48-year-old male with altermental status who's brought in by EMS from home, and... Um, in the EMS note, and the medics say he vomited uh, 500 mLs of blood en route. So he actually threw up 500, he had some hematemesis. So, um, can I have a student to volunteer? What would you like to do? The patient's coming in and your, you know, your, uh, your beeper goes off and says there's an ALS run in bed two. So his vital signs, very good. So we'll start with the basics, start with his vital signs, and his vital signs are such. 74 over 40, heart rate of 118, temperature of 38, respiratory rate 24, sat again 92%. Um, obviously he's pretty sick, right? We don't even need to have that discussion. So he is sick. Um, and you can say, well, normally folks who have liver failure, they have a low um, systolic and diastolic blood pressure. That is true, but this is not normal, this is not normal, this is not normal, and neither is that. So he's pretty sick, and plus the history kind of goes with him being sick, right? You have a medic report, and the medic is right there, and uh, she corroborates and says, yes, he indeed did throw up, quote-unquote, 500 mLs of blood. Now you can say, do they really know how much he threw up? No, but he vomited blood. That's all you need to know. And, um, and so now, well, what are we going to do? Setting. Is there anything you would do before the patient arrived? You talk about like activating STEMI or activating stroke or what? If you heard this paramedic report, is there anything you would prepare? Blood blood Maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah, absolutely. At least start thinking about it. Somebody said vomiting French blood and it looked like 500 cc's to them and they're hypotensive. I would order blood. <laughs> yeah, and so that's a thought, right? So you want to get uncross-matched blood? You could certainly think about that. And you could send it back. Um, just depends on your threshold on whether or not you want to order that blood. But certainly, you're 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 starting to think about um, doing those kind of things rather quickly. Um, and then, obviously, this is a patient. Um, when you initially see the patient, where I go back to what I said before is maybe you need an extra pair of hands. Maybe you need your attending there, or you need your junior resident to kind of help you out as you direct the traffic. You can direct them to help help with some diagnostic tests, okay? Certainly if they arrive, which I don't think they would, if they arrive in, a, in you know, ED2 or ED3, you want to move them rather quickly if you didn't have this information. You want to move them rather quickly to a resuscitation room or at least into ED1 area, okay? If you're trying to get things ready, would you, in a case like this, would you ever call like GI fellow, like people right away if you think you need to do it? Yeah, and we'll get into that a little bit as the talk kind of... Um, 
um, evolves and we'll talk about uh, medical management versus surgical management. In this case, I'm considering an endoscopy and banding a surgical management. But we'll talk a little bit about that um, as, as, um, as the talk goes on. And it's a very good question, so hang on to that. Of course, we're going to do a physical exam, and the patient is pale, diaphoretic, and moderate distress, okay? Um, he is uh, non-focal neurologically. Um, he initially came in with altermental status, but he is, he's uh, tachycardic. His lungs are normal. His abdomen is distended, tense, and slight, with slight tenderness when you palpate. He's got lower extremities with 2 plus edema to the mid-thigh. So who has had this patient? Pretty much everyone here has had or seen a variety of patients with end-stage liver disease, and ascites, and plus or minus whether you've seen an active GI bleeder, and if you haven't, you certainly will very shortly. All right, very good. So some of the complications that we we're going we're gonna to discuss today um, are hepatic encephalopathy, ascites and SPP, variceal bleeding, and hepatorenal syndrome. Um, mainly these three, I, just, I tag on hepatorenal syndrome um, but uh, this is kind of hard to diagnose in the acute ED setting, but something to at least think about. All right, so how do we diagnose hepatic encephalopathy, right? What is, what is hepatic encephalopathy? And oftentimes, people talk about ammonia levels. Certainly, if someone is altered and you know they're a liver failure patient, um, you might send off an ammonia level. Now, the ammonia level in itself is, is, um, is not very helpful, so if, if Indeed, they seem encephalopathic, and the history kind of goes along with it. They've been encephalopathic before, or they're kind of, there's no focality to their exam except that they're altered, and maybe they haven't uh, had a BM recently, or they stopped taking their medications for hepatic encephalopathy, namely lactulose, then that's hepatic encephalopathy until proven otherwise, okay? So lactulose um, is, is really good. Um, it, it helps improve encephalopathy in both the acute setting and helps prevent encephalopathy but, um, and helps with short-term survival, but there's no long-term benefit. That, you know, that matters very little to us because we are in the short-term business, right? We want to improve people's lives immediately and to prevent them from coming back to the emergency department to have a good quality of life. So if someone's encephalopathic and you, you're pretty convinced they are, you make sure that obviously that you've ruled out in your brain that it's not hypoglycemia, it's not a metabolic disorder that's separate from encephalopathy, and it's not a CVA or other reasons, then certainly starting them on lactulose would be very, very helpful. Now, you might ask next, what if they're so encephalopathic that they can't tolerate drinking lactulose on their own and they're an aspiration risk? What should we do then? Yeah, and the nurse is going to love you for this, but you can do, <laughs> no, I, you can, but you could do rectal enemas, and they, they say retention enemas, I don't know how much that folks can retain, but at least you can switch that stuff around and help them use the restroom, or you could drop an NG tube and, and actually infuse or, you know, squirt in the uh, lactulose that way. So certainly think about those things, um, if they're so encephalopathic that they can't even, like, swallow and, and follow your commands. This is really a bridging therapy to transplant, so um, also not very helpful for the emergency physician, but, but really just something so you guys know. There are several grades of encephalopathy, not very important to us again. You know, I mean, essentially, 
my, they have changes in behavior with minimal change of con level of consciousness, gross dis disorientation, marked confusion, incoherent speech, comatose. Um, so there's different grades according to this American Association of Study of Liver Diseases. This actually exists. I didn't know that until I did this talk last year. And so, um, and once again, the ammonia level is not, is not consistent with the level of disease, okay? Because there are other, um, uh, other stuff in our system other than the ammonia um, <coughs> metabolites that actually account for encephalopathy, not just the ammonia level. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, effects of lactulose. Um, the, if, if any of you um, are so inclined, especially the, in, the interns, I think I've talked to the R2s and 3s about this, but there's something called the Cochrane Database, kind of a useful thing to do um, if, you're, if you're interested in making a talk or looking up something and you're like, wow, this study says this and that study says that and what do I believe anymore? Um, this is kind of helpful. The Cochrane Database essentially has an expert in the field and they summarize a lot of the data. They throw out all the garbage data um, and the garbage studies and they look at the good ones and they kind of have a, uh, they have a nice summary or, or, or analysis of, of, uh, of, of an issue. So, <clears throat> you know, in here um, we're talking about lactulose and the benefit and harmful effects of, of disaccharides. And lactulose, you know, uh, once again, improves improves in the acute setting encephalopathy and helps prevent encephalopathy, but it has no effect on the overall mortality of a patient, okay? So um, there's also other things that you can use for, um, for uh, hepatic encephalopathy. Anything that you guys, uh, that comes to mind? Yeah, rifaximin is something that's been used, it's, and uh, Dr. Burns can probably comment to that, on that a little bit, but it's an antibiotic that essentially isn't really absorbed that well into the GI system, so it kind of clears the GI tract. Is that right, Dr. Burns? Yeah, it's very expensive, but mm -hmm. it's not usually, you probably can't order a UCI grade. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then still, there's uh, other types of antibiotics you can use. Are those ever used? Right. 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 We don't commonly give it. We have a formula. It's not as absorbed as well as other drugs. Right. And it changes your GI flora, so the aerobes aren't going to be metabolizing the food or something. Yeah. Yeah. And still others that are reported are, are neomycin, just to be complete, neomycin and flagella. We, I have not used any of those. I don't know if any of my colleagues have, but usually we use lactulose. Um, um, and uh, you know, there's, there's, and some, some say, well, why wow, you have this buildup of metabolites? Um, maybe if we use flumazenil, can you use flumazenil to change um, their level of encephalopathy? And there, there's one or two studies that show that flumazenil may be help, slightly helpful in the short term, um, but uh, but but still, I would stick. Bottom line is to stick with lactulose. Okay. Uh, let's see. Once again, I'm just highlighting that little piece. So, um, R2, R2, Dr. Weber, I have not seen you in a while. Welcome back. Hey. How are you? Good. So, this gentleman right here, we've all seen this patient before, right? You've seen this patient before. You've done how many paracentesis now, you think? Uh, 10 or 12, 12 paracentesis. Okay. So, you know, do you know that ascites, you know the word ascites? Do you know where it comes from? Well, it, well, I'll tell you where it comes. It comes from the Greek word actos, and the Greek word actos. Do you know what actos means? Well, actos means a big sack. A big sack. You know, you you know what a big sack is. Okay. All right. So, 
All right, so, so this, this gentleman, Ascites, Actus, is a big sack, and that's exactly what it is. And this is really the end result of hydro, hydrostatic pressures exceeding colloidal pressures, right? That's what this, this is why this happens. And so, and so we move on to Ascites. So <clears throat> the question is, when should we um, treat Ascites in the emergency department, right? When should we treat Ascites? We, we get a lot of folks who come into the ED, uh, out of, maybe out of convenience, maybe they can't get to the regular doctor, maybe they have uh, access to care issues, um, and they perceive um, their condition as being urgent or emergent. Whatever it is, they've come to our doorstep. So the question is, there are some faculty out there that, um, um, that will have differing views on when to tap someone, right? Because you, if you, if you start tapping people all the time, then they may come to the ED because we do it pretty well and we do it right away and they don't have to, you know, they can just say, hey, I'm free right now, I'm going to go to the emergency department. So, but the real question is, when should we really tap someone because it's going to benefit them, right? So what do you think? So like, for a really bad shortness of breath and you thought that the size of the uh, sack was, uh, <laughs> not, was limiting their uh, respiratory effort? I would say that's an indication to, uh, to a parasitesis. Great. If the abdominal pressure was so big that their like, urine output was down, they were going into having some other failure from it. Sure. Sure, sure. So, so I, I agree. I think you know we, we tap someone if they have terrible abdominal pain or abdominal pain. And I, I said terrible, but I take that back a little bit. If they, have, if they say, I have abdominal pain, and they have ascites, and they are in liver disease, they have liver disease, um, I think it's tough to really diagnose SBP clinically. And that's been proven um, by many, many studies, including the physical exam, whether they have a fever, leukocytosis, and all that stuff. Not very, very, very sensitive. So that would be one thing. Shortness of breath, as you mentioned, Dr. Weber, fantastic. And obviously a concern for SBP. Those are kind of the three things to tap. So my one clinical question, if you guys have your little... Um, Sharice sheet with you. This is the first of many. I'm not saving it till the end. I'm trying to break it up a little bit. <clears throat> and I won't give you the answers till later. I'll probably email you the answers so that those who want to do this um, asynchronously can. And you can even if, even if you wanted to write this on your um, iPad notes and send it to me or send it to Sharice, that'd be fine. Um, by the way, we're going to try and automate this whole system of, of um, audience response, and Dr. Ibrahim is going to help um, implement that with, for us. So she's going to look into audience response systems and, um, and how we can kind of make streamline things and use our iPads or phones, uh, whatnot, to, to kind of uh, get, answer these type of questions and keep the audience um, in, engaged. So we have a 48-year-old male with ascites and abdominal pain. Here's um, his blood pressure, no fever. What, what would lead to the most likely diagnosis? Get a CMP and a CBC. Everyone with belly pain gets that, right? Get a CMP, a CBC, and a radiologic ultrasound. Okay. Perform an ultrasound-guided paracentesis without coax. <laughs> Get a CMP, CBC, and a CT scan. Now remember the question. I wrote this question, so I know it's not the greatest. But 
Um, I'm, I'm trying to get to a point here. Reassure the patient if he tolerates POs. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Anyway, so this is the first question, and maybe after the end of my lecture, you'll be able to answer this question, um, and perhaps not. Okay, so we're going to do a paracentesis, right? So the question really is, is it safe? Is it safe? Well, I'll tell you right now that, um, that you know, we, a couple of years ago, we had uh, uh, an M&M uh, about a paracentesis, but I will tell you that uh, the, the, the test in itself, the procedure in itself, has an extremely low complication rate. Extremely low comp complication rate of 0.1%. 0.1%. So that's, that's pretty darn low. Um, it's a very safe, safe um, test to do. So the question comes up, is, should we check INRs, right? Because all of these folks with end-stage liver disease are going to be having an INR that's slightly elevated. And the, and the question is, should we check an INR? Um, the answer is probably not. Now, that's from the evidence. Your local institution and guidelines in the hospital may differ, but you <coughs> probably don't need to check and INR according to the evidence. It's pretty clear, actually. And then the other question is, if you check an INR, at what level do you not do the procedure, or do you transfuse FFP? Right? And there is no level. And this all comes from, again, the American Association of the Study of Liver Diseases. They do not recommend prophylactic blood products prior to a paracentesis, and there's no absolute level of coagulopathy, coagulopathy that would prevent paracentesis. All right? So we talked about INR. What about this whole issue of volume status, removing a ton of fluid, and then having something called paracentesis-induced circulatory dysfunction, essentially hypotension after you remove fluids? Should we be worried about that? Dr. El Rafay. I heard before that you said that I've several times, the three or four times I've tapped someone, is we've limited the amount that we've tapped. To what is that limit? Um, Some arbitrary number? I've tapped yeah? as much as 10 liters off. Okay. And I've tapped as little as 2 liters off. All with each indication was, well, we don't want to take more than 10, or we don't want to take more than 2 or 3, because okay. they could get hypertensive after. Great. So I'm glad we're having this talk, because I'll tell you things. <laughs> There's, there's obviously an art to medicine, right? So every, every person practices slightly differently. And, and, but let me, let me, you can practice however you want when you leave here in two and a half years or three years. But, but I want to tell you the data, and then, and then you understand how you're going to practice. So the, the, the cutoff level is six liters, OK? So it's six liters. So if you're at five liters or less than six liters, the, the chances the incidence of this hypotension-induced volume status changes, also known as PICD, paracentesis-induced circulatory dysfunction, is fairly low. Now, can you have some of that, the hypotension, if you take out two liters or three liters? Sure. But we're all talking about percentages here, right? We make this arbitrary cutoff. We made it, someone made it six liters and said, well, look at the, the risk of getting hypotension when you take more than six liters compared to when you take less than six liters. So, but the guidelines from this liver group suggest that six liters is a cutoff, okay? 
The other thing um, to think about is albumin, right? Because if you're taking off all of this volume and you're worried about colloidal pressures and hydrostatic pressures, you may think of, of using colloids like albumin to administer it with, para with a paracentesis. Um, but the, there's not many studies that were done. There's one study that really showed no benefit with albumin less than six liters. So my general feeling is if they're in the ED and they have, six, they have a watermelon, which is six liters, in their belly, that's what I'd stop at. I'd stop at six liters. And if you're doing a diagnostic uh, or a therapeutic, either way, that's going to help them um, with, with what you need to do for them. So six liters would be, would be what I would stop at. We talked about this a little bit. Okay. So, yes, sir. What about the albumin? <coughs> what about giving albumin? Yes, I, I just kind of talked about. Did you? Uh, so the albumin. <laughs> I know what you were thinking about. You were thinking about surfing, right, Doctor Kenny? This is like this is this is like the Matrix, you know, when you like. Something's gonna, something crazy is gonna happen. Let me go back. Let me go back aside. No, that's a, that's a good question. Let's just talk about it again. Let's hammer this. Let's hammer this. Let's hammer this point home. Here we go. Here we go. So I said there was one study that showed um, that it, under six liters, under six liters, that albumin showed no benefit in in reducing this hypotension and no benefit in morbidity and not mortality. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you just wanted to ask, would you test it? Um, let me think about it. Loculations, I'd stay away from because I don't know what that is. If it's fluid and it's freely floating around, I am pretty safe to tap that. But if, but if it's loculations, I might send them down to a formal ultrasound and then kind of uh, punt to medicine or IR to do it. Um, or maybe even get a CT scan and be like, wow, this is weird. Maybe it's, I don't know, an abscess in there? I don't know. I, that, that would kind of scare me a little bit. I'd stay away from that. So, oh, who are we at now? Um, all right, what did we pick on? Dr. Ray, let's ask Dr. Ray. So you you actually tapped that and you got 800 <laughs> nucleated cells and no organisms seen on gram stain. So what are we going to do with this information? Should we treat them? I'm going to phone a friend. Phone a friend, <laughs> Pete. All right, go ahead. Get up on up to date. All right, fair enough. Phone a friend. Um, Who's your friend? One of the third years. Want to help me out? <laughs> one of the third years. All right, so we got three third years in the back row. Okay. Uh, yeah, in all likelihood, I would probably treat What's the uh, differential? Okay. There you go. So here's your differential. So this is the key, right? Sometimes it depends on where you work. But here we'll get this first. This information comes back first and says 800 nucleated cells. Well, it all depends on what else is going on. Because how do we diagnose Dr. Jen SBP? The number I think you need is 250 nucleated cells. Um, so if and you need them predominantly to be PMN. So if it's 25% of 800, that's only 200, so you don't get it. However, certain other sorts of SBPs can be lymphocyte predominant, like tuberculosis, I think. Okay. So, so you're very close. I just want to 
I just want to change what you said a little bit. So the, the, for, for spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, you need more than 250 polys, okay? So you said 250 nucleated cells, you probably meant polys, and all you're gonna do is you're gonna multiply the 800 nucleated cells by the number of polys and bands, and usually those are just polys. And so you do this simple multiplication, and you come up with the number. So what's a quarter of 800? 200, right? So you would not treat. Okay, good. So we just talked about this. Um, the other thing I want to really make sure that we do, we don't do this very often. I make this plea, um, I made this plea last time I did this lecture, is to go ahead and have some blood cultures bottles at the bedside so that when you actually remove some of that fluid, that acidic fluid, you send it off, um, you put it in the blood culture bottle so, you, so that um, you can actually see if it grows out anything in the blood culture bottles. Yes? So, Yes. Put it in the same bag as one order for culture. Yes. <coughs> Absolutely. Right. Right. So you're gonna have you're gonna have some sterile tubes, and then you're gonna have two. You're gonna have the blood culture so tubes. Black top ones. Yes. And then some regular blood culture things. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've looked this up because I know I know you're supposed to do the blood cultures. There's been confusion. Yeah. And what's how you make sure to tell the nurses? I've had the nurses be like, "Why are these blood cultures here?" And throw them away. Oh. Okay. Twice, and I okay. call the lab. The labs that just make, as long as they have the sterile, the sterile tube, they can still yeah. do the cultures. Right. Really mind if it's in the blood cultures, but it is yeah. mostly in blood culture tubes. Yeah. The only thing with that is <coughs> the amount of time it takes to actually get it to the laboratory. I think our lab's pretty quick with getting most of our lab tests, but it, it there is some degradation. Um, so if you can prevent the nurses from throwing those out because they really think it's blood cultures that we didn't use and say, no, 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 these, this is for the, the acidic fluid. I know it says blood cultures, but it's acidic cultures. And so just kind of remind them. It's, it's better to do it that way. I still don't want you to get stuck. Your safety is the most concern because you have to worry about hepatitis B and C. Anytime you're transferring fluids and putting things in other vials, you have an increased risk, but be really safe because you, you know, you guys have a long career ahead of you. Okay. Um, <coughs> there's something. Um, there's there's um, and maybe Dr. Burns can uh, I can I can ask you to comment on this a little bit. But you can use a leukocyte esterase reagent. It has some varied sensitivity and specificity, but a pretty high negative predictive value if it's negative. Um, and this is obviously only if I don't know if, if you're in a place that you know, in a developing country or something, and you need to figure out if they have SPP really quickly or your lab is burned down or something like that. But um, any thoughts on that, Dr. Burns? Well, I don't think we use it in a um, large hospital in the United States. Yeah. Because you have a micro that can do the gram scan mm -hmm. for white cells as well as the bacteria as well as the culture, so the cell count. So it's probably a better for uh, probably underdeveloped countries. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we need to order that on Okay, yeah, I know. We don't even have those in our department. Okay, it's a moot point. <coughs> Sorry, really quick with cell count, what exactly do we mean? Is that just cell count per high power field or total in the... Per high power field. Okay. Yeah. No, the way they do cell counts, when any body fluid, spinal fluid or fluid or joint fluid, is, is the same as they're, they're doing it per cubic millimeter. It's nothing to do with the field. That's different than the uh, gram stain or a, a spun urine when you're looking at sediment. So they're taking unspun uh, fluid uh, and they're putting it on a, 
a grid which has these little individual uh, things that have one millimeter cubic millimeters. And you're, they're telling you the cell count per cubic millimeter. Okay, cell, cell count per cubic millimeter. I stand corrected. Okay. Very good. Here's a study if you guys want this. This is about the leukocyte reagent testing. I'm going to kind of flip through that really quickly. Okay, so treating SBP, uh, we know it's polymicrobial. <laughs> and uh, so um, we really want to treat it as a poly polymicrobial uh, disease. And so my, my recommendation um, is uh, to send, to send um, uh, cell counts and cultures even on your therapeutic taps. Um, because um, there's been some, some studies that, that suggest early SBP or bacteriocytes, and that's why even if, if, if the cell count differential indicate they don't have uh, SBP then, the cultures are sent, and then you can actually see in 24, 48 hours whether they grow out anything. And I know it's tough for us to follow up on cultures because of the nature of our specialty, but, um, you know, it's probably pretty important in this case because um, it could be early um, SVP and you want to make sure that uh, they have that sense so that if it is positive, then um, you can certainly uh, have them come back and treat them. Um, so we talked about asymptomatic outpatient TAPs and the rate of SVP a little bit. And really, there's a low rate of SVP in outpatient uh, folks. So people who come to liver clinic and say, oh, I need my fluid drained. And so the rate of SVP is really pretty low. Um, in inpatient TAPs, they're obviously a sicker population. And so the rate of SVP in that case is about 21%. So there's no studies that were done in the ED, but um, I don't know, maybe it's somewhere in between the two, right? So maybe it's maybe we get some folks who are kind of outpatient folks that can't get to the clinic, but some we usually generally see sick patients. So I imagine it might be somewhere in between, maybe in the 10 to 15 range, but that study's not done. Um, be kind of interesting if someone wanted to do that study. Um, it'd be a, actually a pretty decent um, resident project. Um, you, could, you could collect data on all, uh, you know, all people and say, hey, are you here just to get your fluid tap for no reason? You know, not for no reason, but why are you here? <laughs> why are you here to get your ascites drained? And then they, they might say, oh, well, I have belly pain or, you know, I can't breathe or something. And then you go, okay, fine. And then you, you might say, well, you might ask the resident or the attending and say, what is your Likert scale probability that this patient really has SBP? And then they might say, well, I really don't think so. It's like one, one, you know, one being least probable, ten being absolutely sure. And, or you can go one through five, whatever. And then you can actually follow their culture results and their um, cell count differential. It might be an interesting project if anyone needs one. <coughs> Antibiotic choices. Um, I'm going to let you read this. But really, you, we're, we're covering, um, it's a polymicrobial disease. Cephotaxime is probably fine. Um, I've never treated SVP as an outpatient, but there's some talk about, about that in the literature uh, and giving Ofloxacin PO. Um, I've never done that myself, but that's certainly out there. We talked about bacteriocytes, which is kind of early, early SVP. So um, once again, send your cultures. If you can do it at the bedside, would be great. And then... Um, Make a mental note to follow up on those tests in a couple of days, okay? Um, just highlighting that. Hepatorenal syndrome, um, 
you know, hepatorenal syndrome is, is something that is very difficult to diagnose in the ED, namely because of this third highlighted um, point here that says there's no improvement of serum creatinine within two days of diuretic withdrawal and volume expansion with albumin. Well, these folks come in at time zero in our ED, and they haven't had the luxury of having any of these happen to them in 48 hours. So they usually are on a diuretic, spironolactone usually, and they have not been volume expanded with albumin. Now, if they have tried that as an outpatient and then have come in two days later, you might be able to diagnose that. But, but these are the criteria for hepatorenal syndrome. You need cirrhosis with ascites. You need increased creatinine over 1.5. You need this third caveat, no improvement of serum creatinine within two days. Absence of shock, that's really important. No current or recent treatment with nephrotoxins, so nothing that would causes elevated creatinine and absence of parenchymal kidney disease, okay? So this is the diagnosis of hepatorenal. I'm not, I don't even think it'll come up in your board exam, but just wanted to be thorough. All right. So management of hepatorenal syndrome is really albumin. Um, this, um, you also want to increase splanchnic flow, and you can increase splanchnic flow um, and various mechanisms, namely um, vasopressin analogs, and there's something called tur uh, somatostatin analogs and vasopressin analogs, but there's, an there's one in Europe that isn't currently used here called turlipressin, which might be on the market sometime soon. Um, uh, there's some trials using norepinephrine, which uh, compared to turlipressin, and that might be an alternative to using that um, for hepatorenal syndrome. Um, and then um, in paracentesis, there's a non-randomized study that showed paracentesis in volume-resuscitated patients with hepatorenal syndrome showed some improvement in the renal fun function. So um, take that as you will. Just kind of wanted to throw that out there. Let's talk about esophageal varices. Probably one of the bigger, bigger things that you will see, one of the very dangerous, um, life-threatening um, consequences of chronic liver disease that you will see in the ED. So you always want to think about your ABCs. You guys did that. You got them on a monitor very quickly, and you um, thought about blood products and whether or not to order blood products right away. That's awesome. Um, you know, there, there is um, some debate about an NG tube, and the debate really is whether or not to put in the NG tube. The NG tube itself, you know, here's some friable esophageal varices, and there was some thought, if you put an NG tube down, will you make the variceal bleed worse, or the varix worse? And the answer is no. So you won't make things worse, only in that um, you are, it's a pretty painful thing to put down, an NG tube in an awake patient. You know, you always worry about aspiration. That's what you worry about, not about breaking up any more esophageal varices. Sure. So I had a, a pretty stable, uh, or a pretty unstable GI bleeder that didn't that put it like seventy something year old, but like kind of tenuous. Mm -hmm. Put an NG tube down, especially in somebody with an old heart and old, you know, neurologic system. She braided right down and coded and died when we put the NG tube down in. Mm -hmm. This is a lady who came in with blood pressure of seventy, mm -hmm. got fluids, had blood up, got her blood pressure up to like one hundred one, braided right down, coded, died. So probably killed her by putting in an NG tube. Just something to think about. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I wouldn't go as I wouldn't go as far as say that you killed her. I mean, she was pretty sick. I think um, certainly, if if this happened, this this may be a case report, and it's hard to really prove whether your NG tube killed her or did she pop another varix not due to the NG tube and then bled out and then her heart gave. Uh, but anytime you do a procedure, I do agree you have to think about the pros and the cons and the information it's going to give you. So I think that point, at least, I will agree with you, Dr. Seip. I'm not a big fan of the NG tube. I know many people are, like Dr. Langdorf in particular will disagree with me. I just hate those things. If someone said they vomited up blood and they have ascites, I mean, that's an esophageal varix that's bleeding. I mean, could it be, an, could it be a gastric varix? Sure, but I mean, it's an upper GI bleed, right? I don't need to prove that it's an upper GI bleed. I'm going to hit him with the kitchen sink. And so what is the kitchen sink? Right here. Okay. So <laughs> blood, right? We need blood. And someone said, let's give them blood. So let's give them blood. And you might need to rip them, which is a rapid infusion protocol, because sometimes these guys bleed and they bleed and they bleed and they bleed and they bleed. Um, you certainly want to think about other blood products because once you start infusing more than a few um, um, pack, few bags of packed red blood cells, you have to worry about your platelets and your INRs, and in which in this patient will already be affected by their end stage liver disease. So really think about that as well. Um, you want to start your somatostatin analogs in this case. You want to start. Um, you can consider erythromycin, although erythromycin, erythromycin in itself can cause nausea and vomiting. But some folks, I don't do this, but um, um, some of your GI specialists may ask for it. I don't know. Um, and mainly it helps with motility and help kind of clearing out, um, moving the blood away so that they can actually get to the right spot and, um, and band it. Here's... Um, <clears throat> The, the other things that I, I really want to talk to you guys about here are, well, somatostatin analogs and, and variceal bleeding um, really is helpful, so start a somatostatin analog. Um, the last time I gave this lecture, I forgot who it was, but asked about a proton pump inhibitor um, to reduce... Um, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of the acidity in the stomach. Sure, you can start a proton pump inhibitor. It's not going to hurt the person. I don't think it's going to help. And if you have limited resources and limited IVs at that moment, I'd hold, it off, I'd hold off for, for something else like blood products um, and, um, and other things. So we want to talk about sclerotherapy versus vasoactive drugs in, in varices. So there's no significant difference we're found comparing sclerotherapy with each vasoactive drug for any outcome. In fact, um, when you look at um, some of the summaries and, and summary papers and review papers, uh, medical management of GI bleeds um, is, is better um, than surgical management or banding. So what, our, what we should do is really concentrate on the medical management. Now, would I get GI on the horn right away and make sure that they know about this patient? Sure, sure. I mean, that, that makes sense, right? I mean, they need to come in and you need uh, another consultant and obviously someone else needs to take care of this patient after the acute stabilization of the patient. But just so you know, don't forget about all these other things. Don't forget about your colloidals, packed blood cells. Don't forget about your somatostatin analog. And then finally, I just want to really make sure and I don't, I'm not sure, how many people are giving antibiotics for your GI bleeds? 
your your uh, varicell bleeds. Okay, good. So the seniors know, um, but you should be giving antibiotics for your esophageal varicell bleeds. There's there's studies that show that these patients have some translocation of bacteria and increased risk of sepsis. And pretty good studies have shown that uh, giving them prophylactic antibiotics have reduced their morbidity and mortality. So make sure you give them antibiotics. Once again, broad spectrum antibiotics, third generation cephalosporin will be will be good. Okay. Yes, cephalotaxime is perfect. Yeah, yeah. It's I, and I and I don't think um, I didn't I didn't read into it in detail, but it's not the translocation itself in here, but it's 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 kind of their systemic response and being um, immunocompromised, and then uh, colloidal pressures kind of changing, and then having increased SBP and other types of translocations. So I think it's more in the gut that it happens. Okay. So once again, ABCs with fluid resuscitation. Um, IV access, really, really important. You know, um, Dr. Koenig mentioned, I think, in the last lecture, but you really want to make sure that you have really good IV access. And maybe that's a central line. You know, folks with end-stage liver disease don't have very good peripheral access. They're going to have a really good EJ, I bet you. <laughs> that's, that's kind of anecdotal, but it, every time I see these patients, they have a humongous EJ. So if you need to put an 18 somewhere and the nurses are struggling, even with ultrasound, that's a good place to save your behind. You can stick an EJ. Now, of course, you've got to lay them flat a little bit. They're vomiting. I mean, there's a lot of complications, but they're sick patients. So you've got to take a chance. You gotta, I mean, they're circling the tube, so you've got to do what you can. Somatostatin analog, consider an NG tube and erythromycin, um, just depending on your attending, but um, not with me. Start prophylactic <laughs> antibiotics, and, um, and that's that. So back to our patient. So here's our patient. We have a 48-year-old male. Remember, his altered mental status brought in by EMS from home, vomited 500 mLs of blood. We have unstable vital signs. So what are we going to do? Summarize in my lecture, guys. <laughs> IVO2 monitor, good. IVO2 monitor. So we have two large bore IVs. We, get, we put one in the EJ. They're able to find like an 18 or 20 antecubital. Great. And you have them on a monitor and you're monitoring the patient. What do we do next? ABC blood products. Yeah, so let's, let's order blood products now, right? There's, some, there's hematemesis. Let's order blood products. Obviously, you could do a hemoQ um, to verify. Now, if they just started bleeding, um, it's hard to really tell. It's just like the hemoQ in a trauma patient. Uh, you know, it takes about 20 minutes to re-equilibrate, but um, you may not have a low hemoglobin. But if they have a source of bleeding from home or they're actively bleeding in front of you, give them blood. Give them blood. All right, good. And then? Good. So a somatostatin analog, antibiotics, and then GI. Erythromycin, NG tube maybe, and a GI console. Fantastic. Yes, Dr. Kinney. So with the whole NG tube issue, I've found that usually whether or not I want to pull one in or not, yeah. I call a GI and the first thing they say is, oh, did you, you know, uh, flush the stomach to see if it clears? Because they're trying to decide they need to come in right away or not. <laughs> so what do you like to do? If you don't really want to put an NG in, the first thing they're asking for usually is, what if the NG flush? You know? Here's how my conversation would go with this person. I said, look. His blood pressure is 74 over 40. 
He vomited 500 mLs of blood. Where did that come from? I don't know. Do you have any idea where this came from? No, are you sure? It's not a lower GI. Can a lower GI bleed? You can actually vomit that stuff up? Is, is that true? That's my question. Well, the question, yeah, I, uh, yes, I get it. Um, so if they're, in, if they're kind of like on the fence. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to ask them, are you coming in now or are you coming in later? And, and, I, and the main thing I would say is, if I want them to come in now, I don't even want to have that conversation over the phone. I'm nice about it, but I don't want to have that conversation. I will say, Sh you know what, sometimes I do say a white lie. I say, you know, we'll, we'll work on that. But are, are you coming in, man? Because this is like, you know... I understand they're too unstable, they're too stable, it's, you know, I, I get it. <laughs> but, you know, there's got to be a point, there's got to be a, some small window that you guys are happy to come in. I'm trying to find that comfort level. How do we make that happen? Can I come pick you up? You know, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know. I just, I hate having that conversation. But be, I be, I'm nice about it. I just, anyways. Pitfalls, let's talk about a few pitfalls. Um, the patient needed central access, so I placed a subclavian line. Just be careful, um, once again, in putting a subclavian line on someone who is end-stage liver disease. Their INR is 1.6. Their platelets are 80,000 and not sticking properly. I'd, I'd put an EJ. And, and then now there's uh, some recent evidence that even a femoral line is, is no worse than putting in a um, IV access here in uh, the neck or subclavian in terms of um, infection rates. Right, Dr. Burns? Right, at least for the short term. Yeah. Compressible, right. So, so really consider a femoral line in these patients, which is hard, where you're hard pressed to actually put them flat or in Trendelenburg to get a nice fat IJ that's pumping. Okay? The patient was afebrile, so I did not send the paracentesis fluid for analysis. Once again, I want to reiterate that it's very hard to diagnose SBP. So fevers, abdominal examination, leukocytosis are not very reliable. So if you're going to tap somebody, I, I think you should consider sending it for fluid analysis. So just consider that in your practice. I know you will get some variation again, and that's the art of medicine, but in, I would generally say to send it. The patient had a seizure during his evaluation in the ED. The finger stick glucose level was 20. End-stage liver disease patients, they don't have very good stores of glycogen. Um, and I have done this in my residency. I came in, and it was, it's the notorious sign-out, right? You take a sign-out, you're like, okay, okay. And, we, and when we did sign-out, we actually rounded on patients. I know we don't do that here, but we went to every patient. like, oh, man, that guy's kind of sick. Okay, he's going to the unit. Great. Okay. Next thing you know, doctor bedside, sauna's breathing. I'm like, oh, my goodness. The first thing that comes to my mind is like, yes, I'm going to intubate him. So I tube him, sent off a basic set of labs, and his glucose is like 22. I mean, that's terrible. That's very poor form, you know? But, I, you know, I, I know these things happen, but just remember, reassess the situation. It's, again, this anchoring bias and all that stuff that you brought up, which is a very good M&M. I, I did not prescribe antibiotics for the variceal hemorrhage patient. You have to prescribe antibiotics because it changes their outcome. You have to prescribe antibiotics, broad-spectrum antibiotics for esophageal variceal bleeding, okay? That you cannot miss.
I did not recognize the patient was altered. He comes in here drunk all the time. <laughs> so, you know, just to mention that, yeah, he's end-stage liver disease, but he could be encephalopathic. Um, you also have to obviously worry about trauma and head bleeds and all of that stuff. So just um, remember our nurses are excellent. They're very good. But sometimes, you know, they, they sometimes that anchoring bias is, is, is so strong that you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I did, I did see him yesterday. He was drinking, you know, and maybe it was a completely different person. All right, here's a few more questions. You've just intubated and fluid resuscitated a patient with esophageal variceal bleeding. Which of these treatment modalities has proven to reduce morbidity and mortality? Sclerotherapy, medical management, antibiotics, both B and C. God, I love that, B and C. <laughs> All right. Question, you guys got that? Okay. How do you diagnose spontaneous bacterial peritonitis? Just want to really make sure that you guys remember this. I know it's basic, but just this is the gist of my lecture. Almost done. Here's the stuff that I read last year, and then more stuff this year that Dr. Burns gave me. Any questions?